0: This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we talk about Black Lives Matter and what it means for the field of comparative and international education.
1: If we think about Black Lives Matter as an enunciation, as an expression, it's quite easy to see the kind of global reverberations. In 2020, with NSARS in Nigeria, the kind of framing of Nigerian Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is often a hashtag that is used to amplify those movements and struggles.
2: Many of these ways of thinking, and also this aspect of abolitionist futures and the kind of analytical tools or frameworks that can be used to explore that through Black Lives Matter, and their work, but also through other traditions. I think it opens up the possibility for the sector to think differently.
0: With me are Sharon Walker and Crystal Strong, who have recently co-edited with Darren Wallace, Arethi Sriprakash, Leon Tickley, and Crane Sudin, a special issue of Comparative Education Review, entitled Black Lives Matter and Global Struggles for Racial Justice in Education. Sharon Walker and Crystal Strong, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: Many thanks. Thank you so much for having us. So Black
0: Lives Matter, I guess it first appeared as a hashtag in 2013 after Trayvon Martin was murdered. And then there's been so many additional murders and deaths of Black people in the U.S. And then in 2020, when George Floyd was killed, it just sort of erupted into this massive protest movement. And it often seems that Black Lives Matter is this U.S. phenomenon because of the sort of continued violence against Black people in the country. But your special issue really sort of says, you know, the movement for Black lives is actually this global phenomenon. So can you give me a sense of just, you know, the global reach of Black Lives Matter or the movement for Black lives?
1: We have been really intent in this special issue on, number one, as you mentioned, bringing together a set of Pieces that really do sort of affirm and think through the global implications of Black Lives Matter, as we say, a rallying cry as an organizational formation and also as a decentralized movement, but also taking very seriously the often underappreciated internal globalism within the movement. So for example if we think about Black Lives Matter as an enunciation as an expression it's quite easy to see the kind of global reverberations right we saw in 2020 in with NSARS in Nigeria, the kind of framing of Nigerian Lives Matter, right? Or when people are victims of state violence and particularly anti-Black state violence, Black Lives Matter is often a hashtag that is used to amplify those movements and struggles. And so there's a way in which BLM and Black Lives Matter becomes a way of drawing attention to the perilous conditions of Black life, not just in the U.S., But internationally, at the same time, I think if we look at BLM as an organizational formation and we appreciate the sort of long evolution of the struggle, we can discern many ways that BLM has been quite influential when we think about, for example, the Ferguson uprising after Mike Brown Jr.'s murder, right? or if we think about the uprisings in Baltimore after Freddie Gray's murder and thinking about the ways in which the occasion, the frequent occasion of Black murders at the hands of the state have occasioned these kinds of uprisings, right? We can see a kind of pattern of both the violence, but also the organized resistance to it. And I think certainly we saw that in 2020 after George Floyd's murder, where there were solidarity protests all around the world in historic numbers in many cases. But I think, you know, part of what we really tried to draw attention to is number one, the kind of internal attention within the movement to globalism. It's actually one of the guiding principles of Black Lives Matter, the organization, but also really thinking sort of transnational about its impact on how we think about anti-Blackness, right? As a structural and global phenomenon, how we think about state violence, how we think about how that is expressed within schooling, within educational experiences, and how we also think about sort of transnational movements that BLM gives us an opportunity to understand.
2: And just adding to what Crystal has said, particularly when we think about the kind of demonstrations, etc., that have occurred in 2020. And I think that that was a real kind of signal to the fact that these issues are global that people are kind of rising up all around the world. And I think that's significant because I think one of the things that, for me, kind of coming from the UK, and also I have an interest in France because I lived there for quite a long time, just watching how these things have played out over the water, you know, across the water from the US and seeing the recognition of this kind of anti-blackness anti-black violence etc people understand and recognize what that is not just in the US but globally but also the kind of sense of and I would say in the UK for example the kind of grappling with and I'm talking much more at the kind of national political level with is this relevant here a kind of pushback against this even though at the grassroots level people are speaking out are saying that yes this is relevant they're organizing around that kind of BLM kind of movement or action etc and yet there's this kind of question of that is something that happens over over there in the U.S., is it
0: relevant over here? Is some of these grassroots sort of the organizing, as you said, you know, BLM can be seen in different perspectives, but at the organizational level, has there been attempts to connect across countries? I know obviously within the U.S. there might have been some organizational efforts, but how about transnationally in a way.
2: I think that here in the UK, there has been organizing around the kind of Black Lives Matter. So for example, we have blacklivesmatter.uk and then also we have the kind of Black Lives Matter kind of Global Network Foundation, which has kind of like chapter organizations over here in the UK. So I think that there has been a kind of institutional, when I say institutional, I don't mean that in the kind of sense of institution lies, but that it's it's come off of the street, so to speak, and it's actually not just you know it's not it's not a case where we can talk about that happened in 2020. It's actually resulted in the kind of formation of groups and action um, going forward. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I, I do think that there has been. And I I don't know if that's across how many country contexts that that spreads across, but definitely in the UK, that that has been something that's been happening.
1: So one thing I'll just add to that is, you know, this hasn't come up yet in the conversation, but I'm actually an organizer within Black Lives Matter. In the Philadelphia chapter, I also do organizing within the network formation as well. And, you know, as Sharon mentioned, there have been affiliated chapters in three countries, the UK, the US and Canada. But apart from that, there has been sort of waves of solidarity over the years of BLM's existence. So for example, there have been solidarity statements about police murders in the UK, in Brazil, Australia. There have been a few different groups of BLM organizers who've gone to places like Palestine to learn from the struggle in Palestine. And there were some pretty viral interactions between Palestinian organizers and folks in Ferguson during the Ferguson uprising, you know, giving suggestions on how to prepare for tear gassing. And a particular kind of repressive state violence and and counter, you know, to counter an up an active uprising. And also there have been BLM organizers who've gone in solidarity to places like South Africa to learn from their struggles. And so there are those kinds of formalized and established relationships that have been developed. But also, you know, as I mentioned earlier, globalism has been named as a emphasis and also a intentional guiding principle. And, you know, there's ways that we can understand that as an aspiration, right, that is kind of sought to be realized, but we can also look to tangible examples of solidarity efforts and certainly the ways that folks around the world have really taken up the mantle of BLM and thought with it and amplified um, struggles, you know, recognizing that there is certainly a centralized locus of focus in the U.S., right? But that does not mean, and it certainly is not the case that, you know, there's uh, an interest in an understanding of the transnational scope of the problem of anti-Blackness and state violence.
0: So how does BLM understand the, the idea of globalism as sort of a guiding principle, as you said, an aspiration?
1: One of the things that we were quite intentional about within the special issue was taking very seriously the movement knowledge that has been generated within Black Lives Matter, which is an organization, but also the movement for Black Lives, which is a larger constellation, a transnational constellation of organizations, right, that are Black-led and that sort of coalesce around fighting against state violence and for Black liberation. But within the 13 Guiding Principles of Black Lives Matter, globalism is defined in the following way, and this is a quote, we see ourselves as part of the global Black family, and we are aware of the different ways we are impacted or privileged as Black folks who exist in different parts of the world. And so part of what we hear in this and what we can discern in this is a sort of understanding of African diasporic kinship, right? But also an understanding of the ways that Blackness and Black experiences are tied together in many different ways, including through sort of common experiences of oppression and also the realities of white supremacy and anti-Blackness as global structures that require global struggle.
0: How is the movement for Black Lives or or Black Lives Matter, how is it connected to schools, if at all, or maybe just education more broadly?
1: I think
2: that from what I see, I think there's been a much more kind of expressive application of BLM in schools in the U.S., sort of the Black Lives Matter in school movement. For example, and I think that that's something that's very concrete, and, I, and I'm sure in a moment that Crystal will give more information on that. When I look at that, when I look at what's happening there, and then I kind of ask similar questions, um, for example, to think right, you know, what has been happening in in the UK, for example, around Black Lives Matter in school? We haven't had that kind of similar Black Lives Matter in school movement, kind of activism and teaching that's very much grassroots and is kind of reaching across schools. Although I think particularly in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd there was a lot of activity not in the sense that there wasn't any before but it kind of coalesced around that kind of 2020 experience and kind of brought to the fore many of the things that were happening and so for example there was um, kind of reports in the newspaper about not not only teachers but actually young people requesting for a different kind of curriculum and so one of the examples is is been the hackney curriculum which has been developed um, in hackney and which teachers and children have actually requested they've wanted to see a change in what, what they've been learning etc and so and then you know you think about things like I'm sure you've been onto the BBC educational website around that time lots of new resources came out admittedly they didn't necessarily focus on British black politics which is again interesting so you know they kind of went around the world and looked at key people in other global contexts you know people like Nelson Mandela Martin Luther King etc so there's an issue to be raised there young black people in Britain it would be good for them to learn about Black British history and Black British politics, but maybe that's for another conversation. So I think that there has been action and activities in schools, but I don't think it's been, from what I understand, as organized as it has been in the US to date. And I also think it's quite interesting, again, in the UK context, and this is also true for the French context, that although there was this kind of initial celebration of Black lives and the kind of, you know, the recognition that we need to support Black Lives Matters, etc., that since that time, we've had some really strong pushback. Even, um, you know, if you think at the kind of government level, talking about the kind of political impartiality in schools, which has really pushed back against the teaching of Black Lives Matter, the teaching of curriculum, of critical race theory, rather. And so we've kind of had a real double-edged experience of, on the one hand, the kind of euphoria around Black lives, that you know, from 2020, a few years onwards, but now this kind of pushback. And even using the kind of like the language of safeguard and how we need to safeguard children against this kind of teaching that might be happening in school. So yes, I think we've had a bit of a double experience on this side of the water.
0: In Hackney, it's like a different world in a way. But then at the national level, there was something called the Seawell Report, as I did a show on it.
2: That's correct, because that's that's been very significant, because, I mean, that... The kind of commissioning of that report came out on the back of the, the demonstrations in 2020. The idea being that the government commissioned a report, they wanted to look at the, I can't remember the exact expression that they use now, the state of race relations or something within that kind of broader context within the UK to see, you know, what the issues and the problems are. And I mean, and as you well know, the report was slated or it, it received a great deal of criticism, you know, for many different reasons, including in the education sector. For example, there was questions about the type of data it, it drew on the questions it asks, who it engaged with example, for example, and also whether there wasn 't already a slight ideological push behind the report even before it was you know researched or published, in that there 's not a real acceptance of the idea of institutional racism for example, and so therefore any findings from the report would therefore speak against that, and I think that all people wanted was a fair engagement with the evidence that's out there, what we know from quantitative and also with quali- from qualitative research. But I don't think that that was given a, a really fair hearing within the report, really.
0: It's a really interesting sort of overview of what's going on in the UK in terms of this moment where everyone's talking about it, really pushing change, and then sort of this backlash and this counter-narrative that has now arrived in a way. Crystal, what about in the US, or at least in maybe in Philadelphia, where you have been sort of working with the BLM chapter?
1: There, There, There has been a very important connection, instead of connections and growing connections between Black Lives Matter and schools since 2016 here in the U.S. In 2016, in Seattle, there was a BLM Day of Action at a local public school. But then in 2017, after hearing about the Day of Action in Seattle, Philadelphia educators, through the Caucus of Working Educators, which is a teacher organizing formation, decided to create BLM at Schools Week of Action. You know, the local BLM Philly chapter was supportive of this week of action from the beginning and has retained a relationship with the organized teachers who pioneered it and have Through their organizing efforts, BLM at Schools Week is a movement in its own right, as a matter of fact, that has spread to school districts all around North America, as a matter of fact. And so it's gone from a day of action to a week of action to a year of purpose. And so there are, you know, demands around the kinds of educational transformation that would align itself with the mantle of Black Lives Matter. And you can learn more about the BLM at Schools movement. movement in its own right. There's an edited book called BLM at Schools. There's also another edited book that's called Teaching for Black Lives that really chronicles the significance of educational organizing in conjunction with Black Lives Matter. Uh, And that's kind of the most direct connection to education. Having said that, though, I mean, we've also seen a historic resurgence of school-based struggles around racial justice in the time frame and inspired in many ways and in solidarity with the sort of grassroots organizing that's happening outside of schools around state violence, right? So we saw in universities, in high schools around the US and around the world, in fact, the use of Black Lives Matter as a way of strengthening existing struggles around racial justice, right? You know, some of this has had to do with. Specific murders of Black people. Some of this has had to do with things like policing, you know, ties with the prison industrial complex between universities, for example. But then we see in places like South Africa, BLM and being utilized in conjunction with movements around natural hair being banned in schools, for example, or fees must fall, right? Borrowing from some of the sort of organizing practices within Black Lives Matter protests. And so there are lots of connections. And and might I add, it's a bi-directional flow or a multi-directional flow, because just as you know, Fees Must Fall, we can see tangible engagement with BLM. Fallism has been enormously transformative, especially if we look at the push in the US and the UK um, that we can tie directly to fallism in South Africa around monuments to state violence and coloniality. And so I think part of what um, becomes very important understanding the connections, but also the multi-directionality of the relationships.
0: And Crystal, you've used a few times now the, the the word state violence. Why is this notion of state violence so useful when we think about BLM and its ability to sort of, you know, understand some of the anti-Blackness, some of the Black violence that we see in around the world, sort of connecting all of these different sort of cases together through this concept of state violence. Why is it so important to use that term and that concept, in your opinion?
1: It's essential because it makes very plain that we are talking about Black life and Black death. And we are talking about the specific vulnerability, the disproportionate vulnerability of Black people to violence at the hands of the state. And so there is a very important way of thinking about this that Ruth Wilson Gilmore has offered to us. She describes state violence, and this is a quote here, as the state sanctioned or extra legal production and exploitation of group differentiated vulnerability. And that is an incredibly important sort of framing, right? You know, this idea of group differentiated vulnerability. This is a, a framing that you can find used within the movement, but even, you know, outside of a more sort of academic understanding of what state violence is. The movement itself has been very important to drawing sort of public attention to these spectacular instances of Black or violence against Black people that we might not know about if not for smartphones, if not for hashtags, if not for viral recordings right? They might otherwise be swept under the rug, right? Especially if we think about the over eight minute video of George Floyd, if there was no video, 2020 might look very different. But one of the things that we talk about in our introduction and that we give credit to is the fact that it's from within the movement that we see incredibly important intellectual and political pivot to the language of state violence. So in 2012, there was a report that was released by Malcolm X. Grass Roots Movement, which is a Black liberation organization, they released a report called Operation Ghetto Storm, which in its language was attempting to draw a connection between Desert Storm and sort of U.S. imperialism abroad and militarism abroad to the militarized experiences of Black folks in urban communities, in particular in the U.S., And so one of the things that the report did was it documented extrajudicial killings of Black people. And they defined extrajudicial killings and state violence as these sort of murders of Black people at the hands of not just police but also security guards and vigilantes like George Zimmerman, who murdered Trayvon Martin. And so part of what that report did is with sort of painstaking documentation, drew attention to these specific instances of police murders and also, you know, just broader murders of Black people and came up with a statistic that was incredibly essential to mobilizing around state violence. And they said that every 28 hours in the U.S., a Black person is murdered by the police. And so state violence becomes very important to, as a frame for understanding the specific vulnerability of Black people to death at the hands of agents of the state.
2: I think the emphasis by Crystal or Rather by Ruth Gilmore on that kind of group differentiated vulnerability I think that is so significant to grasp because I think sometimes you might hear people speaking in lay terms etc and they might say oh you know it's the community or they've brought it on themselves or it's the individual or and I think that when we think about state violence what it really grasps is, is the idea that this is not happening by accident this is something which is almost baked into the framings of the state and it's something that is not just happening, for example, in policing, it's, it's in law, everything is connected, it's all working together. And I can imagine that someone listening to this will kind of like be thinking, oh, you're kind of like talking about a conspiracy theory, you know, everyone's kind of got it in for black people. But I think the thing that we need to remember is when we think about how states are organized today, we have to think about this historically, in the kind of historical context, when you think about the vulnerability, you know, the US is a, is a clear example, the vulnerability of black bodies in the US, this goes back a long way back into colonial. Times and it wasn't as if there was a date in time where everybody said, Right now, that way of thinking has stopped and it continues. And so, we have to kind of think about these connections with yesterday and how they kind of feed in into the kind of states that we have inherited today. And I think that what Black Lives Matter draws attention to is that these ways of thinking and acting and being in the world are is the word endemic to the state? This is how the state is working, and hence why, not just in the US, but you know, I can think of examples in the UK and other contexts as well. Uh, um, as well, where black life is vulnerable as a result of these kind of historical, which have now become contemporary ways of acting and being in the world.
1: And if I can just add on to that as well, I think part of what Sharon is sort of amplifying here is The It requires a sort of historical and also a transnational analysis, right? And it also requires us to understand that we're not just talking about systems in which Black people are minorities, right? If you look at just the period of 2020, a hugely important movement against state violence and SARS forms in Nigeria just months after the murder of George Floyd. Nigeria is a Black nation, right? And so we have to understand that state violence is not just simply about sort of White settler colonialism. It is not simply about, you know, a sort of non-Black state agent who is murdering a Black person. It's about a sort of structure of the state, right? That is connected to colonial power, that is connected to racial capitalism, right? That is connected to um, a particular version of the state that exists. And also, it requires us to understand, like Sharon said, these sort of historical continuities. But even after 2020 and the murder of George Floyd, in the U.S. alone, almost 800 Black people have been murdered by the police since George Floyd was murdered. And that is a statistic from the Mapping Police Violence Project, where you can actually see, and it's U.S.-specific, you can see every single person who's been murdered by the police going back decades, right? And you can isolate it by race, And that is just Black people. But then if we also look at 2020, there was a UN resolution that drew attention to state violence against Black people around the world. And so we can see very similar dynamics in a range of geographic and national contexts outside of the US.
0: It is quite valuable to place the state at the forefront and recognize that the definition of a state is in part the ability to monopolize violence, and then that violence is racialized. It's a really sort of analytical frame to always keep in mind about what what is a state and what makes a state a state. So what we're talking about obviously has these much longer-term historical connections to state formation and how states operated. So in your special issue, you make this really important point, in my opinion, that when you look at the Movement for Black Lives, it's only not about, like, recognizing and talking about sort of the violence against black lives— and the problems of state violence and problems of anti-blackness. But it's also to really recognize that this movement promotes the full freedom and flourishing of black people. It's this rather positive movement, right? It is creating and generating these new spaces for black lives to thrive. So can you tell me sort of what are some of these generative aspects of the BLM movement?
2: And I think one of the things that I find very exciting, and I think BLM is a part of this, and I'm going to use the word kind of intellectual tradition. And by that, I don't simply mean people who are who reside in academia. You're talking about artists, um, people who work in theater, in music, the kind of thinking of ideas and kind of pushing the frontiers of how we think. I'm really excited by um, when I think about discussions around black optimism, Black mysticism, Afrofuturism, and, you know, just very quickly, just to say that when we think about Black optimism, simply put, you might think about that as the opposite of Black pessimism. So Black optimism kind of points towards Black life, whereas Afro-pessimism might think much more of considering kind of like, like Black death and the kind of, kind of like the afterlife of slavery. And, you know, the two can be in conversation with each other. And then you kind of think about Black mysticism, which for me is the one that I find really kind of creative and imaginative in a sense, and that it... It pushes beyond what we currently understand to exist in order to think of black lives differently. And it's almost, um, it describes itself as being a parentology, i.e. it's thinking about an ontology that is not yet become. So we're thinking about something completely different, you know, kind of imagining beyond. And when we think about Afrofuturism, we kind of think about the kind of intersection of the imagination, of technology, future liberation, that's just drawing us some, some ideas there from Womack. You know, for me, I find it really exciting all the ways that different writers and authors are coming together to imagine new things new ways of being in the world. And that's what I really find. I went to an exhibition in London a few months ago. I think it's called the Black Fantastic. It was at the South Bank. And as you went in on the outside wall, almost as if someone had just painted a big billboard outside in the wall, it had something and the quote was something like, black people are in the future. And I really looked at that for a long time. And I thought, I know it sounds really silly thing. But I thought, yeah, that is absolutely right. Because there's been so much in my life, whether that be through the television, through media, etc, where even from when I was young, I had the sense of Black people being rubbed out. But that was almost reaffirming, no, we're in the future. And many of these intellectual traditions, these kind of creative artistic traditions, are thinking and imagining what does that mean? How can we think beyond what we already understand in the kind of current framings of the world to think about Black life and to imagine Black life differently, I think.
1: One of the things I find most frustrating about some of the popular discourses around Black Lives Matter is the sort of framing of it as this destructive movement. And it's frustrating because as someone who's like actually within the movement, You know, there is um, such an important emphasis on Black joy, Black healing, but also the creation of life-affirming institutions like schools and mutual aid projects and making sure that people have their needs met and basically thinking about what would create the conditions for Black people and all people by extension to thrive? And so I'm going to call on a few scholars who I think really remind us of the fact that alongside Black struggle, right, in, in Black oppression, there is always hope. There's always the kind of freedom dream, right? And that's invoking specifically Robin Kelly, who helps us see how Black people are always Nurturing freedom dreams, right? And then you look at someone like the abolitionist Miriam Kaba, who talks about hope as a discipline, right? And who talks about abolitionism as an expression of hope. And then you look at someone like, again, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who tells us that abolition is about presence, not absence. Right. And so some of the ways that we attempted to engage this aspect of BLM and ensure that people understand that apart from the protests, apart from, you know, these kind of mass mobilizations that people are ultimately building, envisioning something beyond this structure and experience of anti-Blackness, of state violence, of racial capitalism, that all work in conjunction with each other. And we focus on two Particularly robust sort of frames and aspects of the sort of movement generated knowledge production around this. And one is the 13 guiding principles, which have come up a bit in our conversation so far. But if you were to read the introduction to the special issue or even Google the 13 guiding principles, you would find, perhaps surprisingly, a robust sort of vision for sort of the kind of principles that offer a very clear articulation of what Black freedom is about, right? And not just what BLM stands against. And so some of these include things like restorative justice, empathy, loving engagement, These are three guiding principles that are precisely thinking about alternative to punitive incarceral forms of justice, right? Diversity, globalism, which I mentioned before, these are all about thinking about connections across communities, right? In addition to that, the movement is always thinking about centering the people who are at the margins, even within an an already marginalized set of communities. So there are specific guiding principles related to Black women being queer affirming, being trans-affirming, and also the idea that everyone, there's collective value. We all have value. And then there are a number of guiding principles that are about the kinds of sociality and ways of being in community that have been eroded by anti-Blackness. Specifically, the idea of the Black family, right? And not the sort of nuclear Western family structure, but the extended family. And also the idea of the sort of Black villages, And then one of my favorite is the idea of unapologetic blackness. We have nothing to apologize about when it comes to affirming black people and affirming blackness. And so I think those guiding principles offer those kind of generative ideas about, well, what would a world look like? What would be the values of a world that. Nurtures and affirms Black people, right? And then the other thing I'll just sort of mention briefly is if you were to look at the Movement for Black Lives website, there is something called the Vision for Black Lives, which is an incredible policy platform that offers an incredibly well thought out and deeply struggled around proposal for the kind of policy initiatives around economics, around schooling, around prisons around reparations that would ultimately create a world that supports Black people and that ultimately undoes many of the sort of policy formations that sustain the kinds of exploitation and oppression that are also bound up in the experiences of state violence that Black people experience. And so those are two incredibly rich sites to understand and to be guided by, right? Both in just how we experience and navigate the world, but also ultimately how we vision educational experiences and systems that are life-affirming for all people.
0: When you really focus in on Black Lives Matter, which your special issue has done so nicely, you realize how rich it is, right? I mean, mean, there's so many interesting theoretical engagements so much interesting sort of social movement issues sort of, you know, transnationally, but also locally. It's both looking at how violence operates, but also, as you've just said, about how it sort of creates these, a possible future world, future ontology, and sort of opens up these spaces of possibility that are just really quite exciting. So I guess the special issue is in the journal Comparative Education Review. So, you know, how does all of this sort of richness connect to the field of comparative education, if at all.
2: I think it's interesting. I think if you think about the kind of field and in the sense of what has been written or what has been researched, there is evidence and examples in the past of writing, which have probably been in the post-colonial tradition, the Pan-African tradition, or people within the field, such as one of our co-editors, Crane Sudian, who's been raising these things, making these things come to the fore. One of the things that really struck me about the conference, just gone there in February, was how much this special issue, even on the agenda as you flick down, how it stood out, from many of the other conversations that were being had. I have a sense that CIES has a long way to go in terms of how it redirects, refocuses its thoughts, its thinking, how it even considers issues such as state violence, uh, racial capitalism, which we didn't cover in depth here, but which you've covered on a previous podcast. But um, so I think many of these ways of thinking, which I think our special issue presents, and also this aspect of abolitionist futures and the kind of analytical tools or frameworks that can be used to explore that through Black Lives Matter and their work, but also through other traditions. I think it opens up the possibility for the sector to think differently, to think differently in its research, the questions it asks. I think even an acknowledgement of the significance of race and racism, and in this case specifically anti-blackness, as an analytical lens in writing, in work, in thinking. Even when you think about things, you know, there must be a plethora of papers writing about neoliberalism in education, kind of the marketization of education. But I think within our special issue, for example, I'm just trying to think of the two papers in particular that have looked at, we've got a paper that looks at um, shareholder schools. I think it's um, Amelia Herbert, who looks at that. And then we've got Tyler Hooks, for example, who looks at school in this plantation. Bringing another way of asking questions about those things that have been repeated and repeated and repeated, and yet nobody by some I think um Charles W. Mills would call it a kind of white ignorance have neglected to even draw attention to the fact that our world is racialized, and this must have an impact in c i s in the world of education on an international local national level, so for me personally, I think the field is a long way to go.
1: I would tend to agree that there is a long way to go, and I think you know part of the space that we have been hoping to expand with this conversation in the special issue is not only sort of drawing attention as Sharon just mentioned to what, uh, particular focus and analysis around anti-Blackness. We can't, of course, deny the ways that people have been attempting to grapple with and advance a conversation about race, racism, colonialism, imperialism within the field of CIE. However, how are we thinking about the specific intersection of anti-Blackness within that? right? How are we thinking specifically about what is distinct about Black people and Black people's experiences in relationship to these structures? And in addition to that, I think there are a couple of other dimensions to what a focus on a movement in a a formation like BLM offers us. One is what we were just talking about, right? We can talk about the structures, the structural oppression, right? But if we're not also looking at the generative aspects, the sort of future horizons and and being guided by those, we might be missing out on some of the the possibilities for transformation that we can be guided by, right? But in addition to that, I think another thing that we should challenge ourselves around is how we're intellectually engaging movements, right? How we are being guided by the, the knowledge that is always produced within movements. And I think part of what we've tried to take very seriously is the fact that, you know, fine, this is a political struggle, but also there are things that we as scholars must learn From the sort of intellectual contributions, the astute analysis that is happening within the movement and be guided by that. And so I think part of the hope is that in addition to a deeper engagement and analysis with the specific sort of problem that BLM names, That we also think about how we as scholars are engaging with movements and how we are guided by the demands and visions that emanate from within those struggles.
0: Well, Sharon Walker and Crystal Strong, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Congratulations on your new special issue.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Sharon Walker is a lecturer in racial justice and education at the University of Bristol. Crystal Strong is an assistant professor of Black Studies in Education at Rutgers University. They've co-edited the special issue of Comparative Education Review entitled Black Lives Matter and Global Struggles for Racial Justice in Education. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at FreshEdpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fati Octus. Obafemi Gunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements, and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the ShockDeaf Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.